It's that time. Welcome to the Time to Man Up podcast. And here's your host, Sean Hess. All right, well, we want to welcome you to the Time to Man Up podcast. We have an exciting podcast for you today. If you remember, Doug Jackson was previously with us as we talked about transition of men's ministry and as he and I worked together at Grace Baptist Church in Troy, Ohio to work with the men's ministry. Well, today we are bringing him in as promised to talk about his time on the Appalachian Trail. I don't know a lot of people that did the Appalachian Trail, but I know two, and that's Doug and his brother Ken who were able to do the entire trail. And what was neat about it is Doug was able to do a series in our in our men's group where he talked about lessons that he learned on the Appalachian Trail. And so, Doug, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I can't wait to hear about this, and I'm excited for our guys to be able to hear it. Sean, it's awesome to be here. This is one I was talking to, our, to my family about uh, this opportunity to be with you on the podcast, and they said, well, Doug, you don't have to study for this one. You lived it, and you know it. You talk it all the time, so I'm, I'm excited to tell others about it, too. Yeah, I, I just, I mean, our guys loved being able to hear about it, but what was neat about Doug is, is he has those practical life lessons that, that come through that. Uh, for Doug and I, uh, that was some of our first exposure to each other is on the trail, and uh, those were just really cool memories. I mean, there were times when we at least took one trip in the summer. There were a couple summers where we took two trips as a church, and uh, I went on all those, and what was really cool is that those trips were great memory makers. Now, we're going to share some of those memories as we talk about it. I, I remember this. That first trip, there were some stories around the, the campfire, Doug. There were some stories that I was like, oh, my goodness. I mean, when you get a bunch of guys around the campfire, <laughs> it's amazing stories that come out. And all I can say is this, oh, the stories we could tell. <laughs> Some of those stories are told on the trail and they stay on the trail. And they stay on. And, and so when we tell the stories, uh, names will not be mentioned. But for you that were part of those stories, you'll know who you were. And we are excited to be able to go through this and to talk about it. And so, Doug, before we get to the Appalachian Trail, one of the things I had to learn was how to pack a backpack. Uh, because, you know, I had carried a, a pack for, for going to class in college. But when we would pack, we would have weigh-ins. And, and Doug, was, Doug just gave this amazing list that you could go through. And as a guy that had, I'd been to Algonquin Park before, but that was like you took coolers to Algonquin Park. That wasn't minimalizing like, like Doug did when he did the trail. He probably more minimized, as we'll hear probably later on, as he went on in the trail. But I never had the lightest pack. And matter of fact, I took a lot of teasing because I would bring candy. I mean, I had Skittles and Twizzlers, and everybody, all the men are, like, laughing at me. But you know who wasn't laughing when we were sitting around the fire and everybody wanted some candy? Yeah. They knew where to come to for that. I probably could have made some good money on the trail if I would have offered that. But we had guys on the trail that they brought some amazing things. I mean, Doug, we had a guy making pizzas on the trail. Yeah, was, I remember muff, muffins that were being made, and and those muffins hit the spot when you uh, when you're out on the trail. Oh yeah, those were those were just amazing. And so the weighing in of the packs, I think one year I really tried, and I maybe came middle of the pack, uh, Doug. One thing that I loved about the trail, and, and just share with me a little bit about trail names. Um, do you have a trail name? Yeah, I do. I do. And, and you know, you earn those trail names. They aren't given. They, they're earned on the trail. Uh, mine was Wiseman, spelled with a Z. Oh. It really, it really came from being a wise guy, not in the sense of wisdom <laughs> or biblical wisdom, but, you know, sarcasm and, and jokes and, and being a smart aleck sometimes, but... It was uh, it was given in honor of naming actually my brother, who also earned his trail name. His is Surefoot, 
uh, he had fallen down and we hadn't seen people in days. It was right at the beginning of the trail and we were in a wilderness area and, and he fell down and uh, I looked at him as he laid on his back like a turtle on his backpack and, and uh, that's where he earned his trail name Surefoot. So he then started calling me Wiseman for being such a, a wise guy. Well, and what was funny is that there's kind of this, I guess if it's just like two out on the trail, it's a little more difficult, but there's this kind of thing that I remember you guys teaching me is that you can't give yourself a trail name. Somebody else gives you that trail name, and usually it's tied to an experience. I remember we had a guy with the trail name Cowboy. <laughs> Again, no names mentioned, but he got a little chafed. And he was walking like a cowboy. Now, we all felt sorry for him because we've all been there before. No guy likes to walk when he's feeling that. But it was so funny. We were walking to, a, to, to an area for a little hike, and you just see him walking down the path. And I'm like, yep, it's John Wayne. <laughs> yeah, we had hairspray when we were out there, too. <laughs> Only guy to bring an aerosol can of hairspray, but it wasn't for his own hair. I don't no. think he had much hair. He, he but, didn't. Uh, <laughs> But he liked to be uh, play with fire and to be a pyro, and so we had hairspray out there as well. Yeah, I got two names, and I didn't like any of them because they were kind of just like practical names. And people are calling me Slider because I like to slide down the the water fountain areas and or the waterfalls, and and uh, then Jump Man because I was always taking pictures. I even on our Time to Man Up uh, website, you can get on there, and the first picture is one of those jump pictures because I used to love, I had seen a picture in a magazine where it looked like a guy was just floating through the air. Now, I can't jump that high. But if you get the camera angle right and the timing right, it looks pretty amazing when you jump. And so we had some good, there, there was one trip, I can't remember which one it was, I know my son Michael was on it, but we were trying to, all of us, were trying to do jump. And one of the guys went down, man, he, he missed the rock when he jumped. And he hit his shin right on a rock and blood going down his leg. And I'm like, yeah, that didn't work very well. So let's get to that Appalachian Trail. Uh, And in in doing some research in the trail, uh, because when Doug shares this, and I'm sure there are going to be some of you that after you hear this, you're going to be like, I want to go do the trail. (laughs) But I want you to understand this trail, and correct me if I'm wrong, Doug, 2,186 miles. Yeah, yeah, it's it's long. That's I think that's the number one thing to say is it's a lot longer than people think. Um, we like to even round it up sometimes just to be simple and say 2,200 miles. Each year it might change just a little bit because there's volunteers that are maintaining the trail and because of different uh, places where they might be trying to preserve the habitat or uh, get around a certain area. So yeah, over 2,100, about 2,200 miles. And so where does that, I, I guess you can't say begin and end because you can go either direction, but where are the two end points of that? Yeah, they, they're called the Northern Terminus and the Southern Terminus. Okay. So the Northern Terminus is Mount Katahdin, which is in Baxter State Park in Maine, very remote area up there, very beautiful area. And then travels down through 14 states on the eastern United States through the Appalachian Mountains down to Springer Mountain, Georgia, which is about 60 miles north of Atlanta. Uh, Again, another beautiful area for the trail to uh, begin or end, depending on which direction you're going. Yeah, that's my son and I have been talking about now that we're down in Florida. We've talked about going up and starting there at the trail and seeing how far we'd go just for a little bit the the maybe a week or so we're not we're not planning on taking on the trail i I always tease doug because doug there's a terminology and maybe you can remind me what this is isn't there a terminology for the purist that stay on the white blazes as compared to people like me that would be getting distracted by all the blue blazes along the trail yeah, a purist is somebody who sees or passes by every white painted blaze. So the Appalachian Trail marked by a two inch wide by six inch long white painted blaze. And a purist, they have the mindset that the Appalachian Trail should be completed every step of the way. Uh, there's two other groups of people. One is called a, a blue blazer. Blue blazes are side trails that mark. <laughs> there's Sean. It, Sean loves the blue blazes. You know, we, it's not that we didn't take blue blazes. Sometimes they go up to a beautiful view or, or to a campsite or something like that, to a water source. 
Um, and sometimes they just go around a, a challenging section and skip part of the Appalachian Trail. And, and people will say, you know, every person's journey is their own journey. We understand that, but our, our mission was to do every bit of the trail as a purist. So if we, uh, if we got off the trail to go into something like a town on one side of the trail and we right. came back out on the other side of the road, we would actually then cross the road again just to make sure we, we step foot on every part of the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, and, and there is something to that, being able to say you completed the whole trail, that, that you had walked every step of that way. Now, I read this, don't know if it's true or not, but 165,000 white blaze trail marks on the entire trail. I, I mean, I don't know who went through and counted all those, but that was amazing. And what yeah, I learned, if you miss them, you're in trouble. <laughs> You can get in a daze and you can just walk right by and kind of forget that you're looking for white blazes and then all of a sudden think, man, am I still on the Appalachian Trail? Uh, you can stand at one blaze and maybe see the next in some areas. In other areas, the blazes can be fairly fairly spread out where you have to really keep an eye on uh, ensuring that you're on the Appalachian Trail. Sometimes it's the only trail there, but other times it's intersecting with other trails or there might even be animal paths that cross and you could get off on one of those and and all of a sudden you're you're deep in the woods and you're not sure where the AT is at. So were there any other besides the blue and the white? Were there other blazes or is that it? Yeah, no, there is one other category. And I'll, I'll tell you, this is the category that we make fun of the most, um, only because our adventure was truly purist in spirit. But there's the yellow blazer category. Yellow blazes being those uh, yellow lines on the road. So sometimes we would, you know, see a hiker, we might even be with them for several days and then they'd disappear. And, you know, later down the trail, that hiker would show back up. Man, you must have really been hiking to catch no. back up with us. <laughs> no, nah, they weren't hiking at all. They jumped in a car, hitchhiked a ride and, you know, maybe skipped miles of the trail and all of a sudden they're back up with us. So that's a yellow blazer. Again, every person's journey is their own journey, but uh, that, that's one that we have a hard time calling an Appalachian Trail hiker. I remember there were a few trips that we did that there were little like places where you could park and go up to the nice waterfall and we would be dead. And there would be these people that just had a little knapsack on and, and doing this little, and I'm like feeling like I'm just, I can't make it. And, and they're all like carrying watermelons around and I'm like, come on. And it, and it just was amazing the different reaction. Probably on a normal day, I'm good being that guy that's carrying the watermelon up to the, the waterfall. But on days when you're getting your butt kicked, you're trying to put in the miles, and you're exhausted, and you've been in the same clothes for days, you see that, and you're like, man, that's weak. I mean, you kind of just look at it a little less, don't you, when you've done the trail? You do, but you know, it was fun meeting those people. We got to meet so many people along the trail. Uh, the best part too is when those those same people, you know, weekenders, weekend warriors, they might be out there. Chances are, Sean, they're, they're a lot like you when they're carrying bags of candy or some snacks. And some of those became trail angels. And that that's another term out on the trail. And trail angels, they're people that are just a blessing to you while you're out there. You know, you might be hungry or maybe just craving a, a Snickers bar. And right. when you know it, that trail angel who was out there just for the day, they've got an extra one packed in their pack and they give it to you. And I, I mean, that that's a real encourager right there. So even though they're there and they've taken the easy way and they're just experiencing it for a short term, man, they, they can be a true a true blessing to come across. Yeah. And, you know, it's I, I feel I read the, the, the stat that over 20,000 people and it might even be around 23,000, but have completed successfully a through hike uh, on the AT. If I was going to do it, it was going to be go for a couple weeks, go home, maybe the next year come and do a little bit more of it. Uh, but around 20,000 people or over 20,000 people. But here's what's, what's amazing, Doug, is that what I read is that there's only a 25% success rate for people that start out and make it. Is that still about what that falls at? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting statistic because over time, that percentage has gone up. Um, <clears throat> the Appalachian Trail, it's, it's a remote wilderness hiking trail. I mean, it is in the mountains. Um, we completed the trail 27 years ago. So it seems like just yesterday, I can still talk about it as if I just got off the trail. But 
27 years ago, things were a lot different. Uh, we didn't have cell phones. Uh, our cameras that we took was a camera and we used slide film in it. It wasn't digital cameras. Uh, our equipment was heavier and really the trail wasn't as supported as it is now. And when I say supported, I mean, you can actually get, you know, an Uber ride to pick you up at a, at a road crossing. If you've got the technology, there's the supports out there to yeah. uh, call upon those supports. So the percentage of people completing it compared to those who attempted has gone up over the years. When we completed the trail, it was about a 10% chance that we were going to complete it wow. when we started. So it, it's gone up significantly. I don't know exactly what it is now. That sounds about right, the statistics that you're sharing. Um, but it is a little bit different now than it was then. So listeners, if you keep in mind what the Appalachian Trail was 27 years ago, uh, that's some of the stories that we're sharing. Now, some of the things have not changed either. Uh, it's still 5 million steps to cover 2,200 miles. Wow. So nothing, nothing you can do with technology to change how many steps are in 2,200 miles. And what I was amazed of is when I was reading, I believe his name's Benton McKay, but in 1921, it was in the October issue of the American Institute of Architects that kind of the vision for this trail was kind of put out there. And then it wasn't until 1936, and I believe his name was Myron Avery, was the first guy to do that trail. Is that correct, if I'm recalling here? Now you're pulling on some of that history lesson for sure. Um you know, there's been a lot of great stories of people who have completed the trail the first, the people who've done it the most, the people who've done it the fastest, and, and records are amazing. Uh, what, I, what I remember most is our story on it. Uh, I know th the stories of others are amazing as well. Each person does have an adventure being out there. And uh, Grandma Gatewood, I think you're going to share about Grandma Gatewood. Uh, she has a famous saying that it takes more heart than heel or takes more head than heel what she meant by that was it's a mental struggle being out there. It's not just physical that it kicks your butt. Uh, mentally being out there for so many days and, and going through such a physical endurance challenge, uh, it is a mental game as well. But Grandma Gatewood, how many times did she hike it, Sean? Yeah, so three times. When, when Doug told me about Grandma Gatewood, I'm like, come on. So in preparation for today, she had 11 children. 23 grandchildren. And Doug, what I was shocked about is you had told me about Grandma Gatewood. I didn't realize that she was 67 years old when she first hiked the trail. There's well, still time guys, for me. There's still time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, guys will go out there and inevitably you have guys that are struggling more than some of the others. And, you know, it's kind of fun to say the, to the guys who are struggling, look, Grandma Gatewood has done this more than once. She did it in kids' shoes, not hiking boots, not high-tech equipment, and she did it carrying a knapsack. I mean, there's nothing better than a story like that to motivate a man to step up and man up and get up and start doing some miles. Yeah, and I was amazed, and, and we'll talk about how long it took Doug and Ken to do the trail. We'll talk about that, but the record if I have updated information is 41 days, seven hours and 39 minutes. And I'm like, that's amazing. I mean, you had to be moving. I'm not sure though. You're really like enjoying the trail when you're doing that, because that's one thing that is, is a real challenge is when you're on there to take the time. And Doug was phenomenal at this about just saying, man, pick your head up, look around and Doug, I appreciated you for that because I was a get from point A to point B guy. And I was like, Doug, uh, Doug and I used to tease because I was a lot like his dad. Doug's dad, man, he's got the task ahead and he was always out front. He was getting it done. He was laying down the, the steps and Doug's dad walks everywhere and I couldn't keep up with him. But I'm that type of person that says, okay, we have to get from point A to point B. Let's do it. And what Doug had to tell me is, hey, Sean, don't keep your head down watching for the ruts in the trail or the rocks in the trail. That's important, but make sure you pick your head up and make sure you look around. And I think that one of my favorite times on the trail, I probably had illegally brought my iPod and uh, I was on top of this m mountain area by myself and I played God of Wonders and I just listened to it. And being in a church auditorium and listening to that and being on the mountaintop listening to that, 
is way different. And it was so amazing. And so I am so grateful for Doug for that time on the trail, those lessons that said, pick your head up. Because I think that applies to us in life, right? I mean, most of us, we're just booking it. We're doing our job. We're living life in our family. And we forget to just stop and pick our head up and just look. And so that's that's an amazing part of this. Yeah, it's. It, I even have to train myself or remind myself to do that when I'm out there. And I think it is one of those lessons of life. Uh, it's twofold. One is go at a pace where you can enjoy what's around you. You know, oftentimes we're that get to point A from point A to point B task driven. And, and we fo- focus just on that task and forget that there's people around us and circumstances around us and beauty around us. And, and the other one is just to, you know, open up your eyes and look around to see those things. So keep it at a pace where you can see it and then make it intentional to be on the lookout for those things. I wonder how many animals I may have walked by on the trail that I didn't even know were sitting right off the trail because you just get focused on that trail right in front of you, the next step. Right. There was one time I I know my son, Michael, he's like, hey, dad, there's a rattlesnake. And I just walked right past it and didn't even notice it. And uh, that and that's if you know me, that's very Mm -hmm. uncommon for me not to notice that. Well, Doug got my protein bar. Um, I am (laughs) I am I am ready for the trail. And so you and Ken decide you're going to take on the Appalachian Trail. Share a little bit about how old you were, what what played a role in that decision, and even the preparation to get to that point. Yeah, it's it's kind of a fun entry into the even the idea of hiking it. Uh, I was in high school as a junior in high school. My brother was in college. He's four years older to, than me. His name's Ken, as Sean, you've pointed out. So Ken calls me from college and he said, I just read a book. It was about a hike. You want to go on a hike? And he didn't tell me what the hike was or how long it was, but we were both Eagle Scouts coming up through the Boy Scout program. We both had a lot of experience camping and even some with hiking and backpacking, but not a tremendous amount backpacking, nothing to this extent. And when he said hike, of course, my ears perked up. I'm like, yeah, let's go on a hike. Two brothers going on a hike. Sounds great. So I committed to it. Uh, not even knowing exactly what he was talking about. And he started to lay it out. It's the Appalachian Trail, you know, get this book and and read it. And, you know, even reading the book, it just doesn't prepare you for what it is. But, you know, as I read the book, I'm thinking, well, that sounds like fun. It's an adventure. Let's go out and backpack this. And we started just preparing, you know, laying out how much food we would need and how long we would be out there. And, man, it was a rude awakening to find out that, the plans of man, you know, you can make all the plans that you want, but when it comes down to it, uh, you got to be a lot more flexible because God's plans aren't always the same as yours. And it was day three out on the trail and we actually just scrapped our plans. We had every day laid out how far we need to make, how much food (laughs) we would need to make it to the next supply point. Day three, we just scrapped it and said, all right, let's, let's go with the flow. But, but you were in a day and time when you did your trip, what year was that? So that was 1995. Um, yeah. So you, you had to be planned. We did. We did. There was, you know, communication was different for us to get our supplies. We stayed in touch with our parents. They were really our support team. And we had prepackaged 21 boxes to go out to trail towns, towns that were somewhere near the trail. Some, some towns, the trail goes right through. There's a handful that it does. So there's no traveling off of the trail to get into town. But we had packaged up 21 boxes and we would call home from a payphone with a calling card and, and speak to our parents. And so they would know where we were at and they would put in the mail the next box. And when the box arrived at the next town at a post office, it would be held there. And, and the post office actually has a system where they will hold general delivery mail uh, for a certain period of time. And, and they would hold it. And we would, when we would get to that town, we would show our IDs. And they would give us our package and that that would contain a lot of the supplies that we would use for the next days not all of it but it would contain things like batteries film toilet paper even seasoning for our food things that are hard to buy at like a convenience store Um, at that time it was travelers checks that were in those mail mail drops because credit cards weren't a a big thing so it was uh it was most of what we would need but we we did have to be planful so that we had that type of supply um, coming out to us so that we could have access to those. Yeah, it's a, a, a 
Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And, uh, I mean, you guys were taking it from <laughs> a little weekend trip to, like, this is weekend trip times a million. <laughs> and and the, the challenge that you are taking, there, in my opinion, there's nothing that can prepare you for that. Mm-hmm. Because, as you said, everyone has to take their own journey. Every trip is different. The weather is different. Injuries are different. Things like that. You just can't prepare for that. And so you're rolling with it. Now, I'm guessing that having another guy on that trip together is pretty important. Oh, having, having a person there. You know, some people do like to do it solo. Uh, most people who do it solo end up spending some time with others anyway. It's a lot of time to be by yourself in your own head. Uh, you know, just not having that interaction. But for my brother and I, I'll tell you, it made a bond between us as brothers that is still deep to this day, 27 yeah. years later. Uh, we don't talk to each other every day today, but we know that we are there to help each other. But out on the trail is where that grew. And we often said that if one of us was down, the other one had to be up because it was inevitable that you would get down mentally, physically, uh, just through the challenges. But the other one would have to be up to encourage, uh, to lead the way, even break snow. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the snow, <laughs> snow challenges that came out there. But right. being, the front guy, being the front guy traveling through snow means that you're, you're packing that down and it's, it's a harder position to be in. <clears throat> so it's good when you can share those. Doug, do you remember what your pack weighed when you first started on that trip? Oh, I totally remember that statistic. That's uh, it, it weighed a crazy amount. You know, Ken and I, we we went through all the uh, equipment lists we could, and we really wanted to make sure that we were living the Boy Scout motto to be prepared. And so we had everything. Uh, we had stirring spoons to cook with. We had you know multiple pots and pans. Uh, we felt like we had really done our diligence in taking out everything that we could, but we did want to be prepared. And on day one, our packs each weighed 72 pounds. Oh, wow. So to, in today's equipment weight, uh, I mean, just totally different. You know, our, our equipment wasn't as high tech as it is now with single wall tents that weigh less than two pounds. You know, our tent was an eight pound tent and that yeah. was considered lightweight back in the day. Uh, but we did end up shedding weight. We ended up sending things home, realizing what we did need, what we didn't need. And so we took it down a lot lower. The first town that we got to, man, we started mailing things home because we didn't want to throw <laughs> it away. It was nice equipment. Right, but yeah. We, uh, we started mailing things home and we mailed home one package and we wrote on the package, do not open until we get home. So the parents, <laughs> they didn't know what was in there. And right. they thought that we had sent them a gift. And so mom was very excited. Her love language is gifts. And right. So she thought that, you know, when, when we got home, we were going to allow her to open this gift and to see what it was. And and we opened it up and it was our water filter. Oh, wow. And she said, what's this? And we said, well, we didn't want to worry you that we sent our water filter home, but it weighed too much and we didn't want to carry it. <laughs> and so we had even sent that home. Now, some people would flip out over that, but, you know, we were drinking water that was rolling off the mountain or coming out of a spring, some of the best water ever. We did risk, uh, you know, getting Giardia, which is a, a waterborne illness, and people got it out there. But uh, we, we went with the risk. We sent even that home. We got our backpacks down to about 40, 45 pounds full of food for the, the next uh, supply point. And, and that was really good. But then winter came and it did go back up a little bit when we had to add some warmer weather, uh, weather equipment. And I mean, there are a couple of things that that <clears throat> reminds me of is this. So when we would go on just our four day trip, five day trip, whatever it was, we, a lot of our guys were aiming for in the 30s for their backpack. It seemed like mid-30s was kind of a common number, if I recall right. But, guys, do this. Grab a couple 25-pound weights and just hold two 25-pound weights. Remember, that's only 50 pounds. Can you imagine carrying that up and down hills, mountains, where the footing isn't great? Uh, You're having to go through little cracks and rocks to get through and things like that. I mean... Carrying just two 25-pound weights is heavy. And then you're putting that on a backpack that sometimes can be very awkward. It shifts. I love And hopefully, for you that are will be watching this on video, hopefully we'll be able to drop some pictures in so you can see 
because it's neat to see Doug and Ken when they're on the trail and with their backpacks on. So hopefully we'll be able to drop some pictures in for you. Uh, for you that aren't, you're just listening to it, you're not seeing the pictures, well, you can get on YouTube and check out the video with that at a later time. But uh, just a great opportunity to see. So one thing that I really remember about Doug and Ken's trip was it didn't start out very great. And uh, all that planning, all that work, mom and dad are go with you. It's, it's time to start the trail. Share with us a little bit, Doug, because I, again, one of my favorite stories uh, because it's just life lessons. And so share a little bit about that start to your trip. Yeah, you know, when we planned the trip, we knew that we were going to have to go southbound. I was graduating from high school. My brother was getting out of college. And so when our starting time was going to be in June, and you can't start in the south and make it up to Mount Katahdin by the time Mount Katahdin is closed due to weather. So you can't finish the trail if you're starting that late. Uh, we needed to start in Maine and hike south. So our parents agreed to drive us up to Maine. They wanted to be a part of this adventure and our support team. And so we had driven up to Maine and Mount Katahdin, the base of Mount Katahdin is way out in the middle of no place. It's a, a dirt road to drive out to Baxter State Park. And so we got up from the hotel very early in the morning you have to really have a full day to get up Mount Katahdin and back down because the starting place of the Appalachian Trail is on top of the mountain. So you have to actually hike from the bottom up to the top to turn around and then start your journey southbound. Uh, so we had gotten there before sunrise and my dad was going to hike with us just up to the top and back down. And mom was waiting at the base of the mountain. She was going to get dad and they were going to drive off as we hiked, began our hike south. Well, as we started up, the, uh, the weather was terrible. Uh, rain turned to sleet, turned to snow and freezing rain. And June 15th, you know, we thought it was going to be a nice day in Maine, but the snow was getting deep. And <clears throat> my dad had turned around and he said, you know, I'm going to go back down. I'll wait for you with mom. You guys get up to the top and get this journey started. Other hikers were turning around. They weren't making it to the top. And, and Ken and I, we finally had to make the decision. We're not making it to the top today. And we had to turn around and go back down to the bottom where my parents were at. And and we were soaked, we were hypothermic, our hands were so cold, we couldn't even wow. release the, the quick release buckles on our backpack wow. hip straps. Uh, it, was, it was dangerously cold. And my dad looked at us because we had said, hey, let's, let's go back to the hotel, let's warm up, let's get a good meal, you guys can bring us back out tomorrow morning, we'll have our second attempt tomorrow morning. And, and dad looked at us with mom standing next to him and he said, this isn't the last time it's gonna rain on your trip, see you later. And here we are, you know, middle of the wilderness, and we had no option but to suck it up and start surviving right then. But that lesson, I'll tell you, when we talk in men's ministry about cutting the umbilical cord, I was a few days older than the, the year, my 18th birthday, and that was truly cutting the cord where I said, you know, I'm going to have to be able to make life with the love of my parents, but the support is changing. And it is different. They are going to be there to encourage me. But as far as providing and accomplishing, that's going to have to be a man's job to do. And man, it was tough seeing my parents pull away, not just because they were leaving us, but because we were cold, wet and hungry and they were leaving us. I, I just I remember talking to your dad and saying, how was that trip home? Because a mom and a dad respond very different to those things. And I know that if my wife and I were in that spot, I would have been doing what your dad did. I'd have been like, come on, kids, get back out there because it's not, it's not going to get any easier. And my wife would have been like, well, honey, let's just take them to a hotel and let's rest. And and we would have had a maybe not even talked a lot on that trip home, maybe. I'm not sure. But it was always neat to hear your dad's perspective on that, too. Because, well, you know, mom... Mom is an encourager, and, and it was funny because as they drove away, she rolled down the window, and her final goodbye, she said, happy trails. And I'll tell you, <laughs> right then, it just did not seem like happy trails, but her encouragement was appreciated. Right. And so when you were teaching your, your curriculum, Doug, you made the statement, the only time you should ever look back is to see how far you have come. Why is that important? You know, we learned that lesson really just a few days into the trip. Uh, you can be walking all day long and you, you feel like you're making progress. But then 
you really don't know how far you've come until you do look back. And it was a particular open summit of a mountain where we could look back and we could still see Mount Katahdin in the background because Mount Katahdin is just this beautiful mountain that stands above all the others. But we hadn't seen it for a little while because we were down in the woods and at some lower elevations. And so now we could look back and we could see it. But I'll tell you, there was there was joy to see how far we had come, but there was also just that struggle of, man, that's that's not as far as we thought. And we still have a lot further to go because if you looked south from where we were standing, we couldn't see Springer Mountain for sure. It was still you know over 2,100 miles away. But looking back, we could see how far that we had come and there was something to celebrate in that too because there was distance between us and that peak that was in the background. But yeah, you don't, if I, you know, every step you were looking back, it just would see like that, seem like that mountain was never fading. But looking back over three days, you could see the progress you had made. So right, I think yeah. it's, just a, it's just a good reminder that in life, it's the same way. You, you do have to go forward. You have to keep putting one step in front of the other, keep making progress. And then occasionally remind yourself that, hey, hopefully if you're growing as a man, you can look back and see that growth. You can see the lessons learned. Yeah, most definitely. And so we, we've talked about how God's ways are not always our ways. Uh, the plans that God lays out for us get are sometimes just throw us off. And, and you guys had a pretty big hurdle early on in your trip uh, when an injury set in. You want to share about that? And, and even, I mean, because that set you guys behind and that put you off schedule. And that was probably a pretty challenging time. Yeah, I had spoke a little earlier about the the itinerary that we had planned for the whole trip, and that's when we decided to throw it away. What happened was on that first day, that wet and cold day, uh, my brother actually pulled his Achilles tendon uh, by stepping on a rock the wrong way, and we didn't realize what the injury was. He knew that it hurt, but we figured it would just be a temporary pain, and, and he'd work through it, but it kept being more and more painful. It was not healing. And so we really had to uh, take it slow. And in the very beginning, we actually took off <clears throat> about about three days. Um, we never took more than three days at any place along the trail, took more than three days off. But that was one of the places where we had to uh, pause. Hmm. And that pause is hard when you know that you still have, you know, close to six months is what we were planning to accomplish the trail in. Uh, it ended up being longer than six months because of some of these challenges that we faced, specifically this injury to, to his ankle. But again, going back to, you can, you can make your plans, but man, even as a grown man and 27 years later, I still have to remind myself, those plans don't always succeed the way you think they're going to. And sometimes plans just straight up fail. But we had to, uh, we had to change, we had to adjust. And so that was, that was the first place where we really learned that to, this ankle was a part of the plan, this ankle injury, and we were gonna have to adjust. Yeah, so I might get us out of, whack sometimes in the areas that I talk about just because not always sure what order that came in with the trail. But I remember in doing my research of the trail that there's this section that's like a hundred miles and you're basically have no contact. If I'm understanding right, was that about in the time when he was dealing with the injury? Yeah, it was, which means that we had to push forward because in the very beginning of the trail for South bounders or the very end of the trail, it's one of the most nostalgic pieces of the trail called the 100 Mile Wilderness. Okay. And and it, even to this day, it still remains very protected. Uh, there's a little bit more ability to get in or out with logging roads and such. But uh, when we hiked it 27 years ago, there was nothing there. I mean, when I say nothing, there's, there's no residencies around. There's no power lines, no lights, no communication, no businesses. It's 100 miles of trail with really nothing. And so when you enter into this section, there's a sign that actually says it's 100 miles from here to the next point where you can receive support, help, medical attention, whatever. Yeah. And so you enter into that, you read that sign and you, it, it's nerve wracking. You're like, man, when, when I get especially to the middle of it, it's going to be 50 miles either direction for me to get any support. But we entered in still thinking that his ankle was going to be okay. And I'll tell you, that made the 100-mile wilderness a challenge. It took us 13 days to get wow. to that next supply point. It was our longest distance or longest time period uh, between supply points. But we, uh, we, we had some adventures through there that are stories in and of themselves on how we, we were able to navigate through that and get some rest for his ankle, those three days of rest. But we, uh, 
we pushed through and then we got to the first town southbound that the trail comes to Monson, Maine. And man, what an accomplishment, but you also get there and you have a telephone and you're thinking, should I call home? Should we, right. should we just quit right now and, you know, have mom and dad come pick us up again. But you know, it was, it was a good accomplishment to get there. It let us get the, some other supplies, some, some more medical tape and braces for his ankle and, and be prepared for the next leg. Yeah. Because we, I mean, when you hear a hundred miles, guys, you, you jump in a car and do that in no time. But this is a hundred miles with a heavy backpack with trail. <laughs> I mean, right. th this isn't like the trail that you guys go to your local park and walk on a trail with mulch or something on it, or it's been smoothed out by heavy equipment. This is trail where trees have fallen over it and sometimes haven't been cleared out. I mean, you're having to go over and under and through all kinds of stuff. And so all of a sudden that hundred yard, hundred miles seems like forever. And, uh, that's without any opportunity to get any help. Uh, should something happen? I mean, however far you're in, you've got to go that far to get out. And so uh, it's hard sometimes for us to comprehend, Doug, that 100 miles. Uh, now, you talk about how relief doesn't always come in ways you would expect, um, and it's often about perspective. What are some ways that, that God brought relief, that, whether through people or situations, uh, on your guys' trip? Yeah, we had you know several different stories, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure more will come up as we talk, but... I know the one that you're referring to, and it, it's a fun story to tell, but, you know, here in, in Maine, the black flies, if you've ever been up in, in an area where black flies are an issue, horrible, uh, they're, they're <laughs> an insect that just will not leave you alone and can drive you insane. Uh, they swarm, they bite. Uh, instead of stinging like a mosquito, they actually make a cut into your skin to get blood, and it I mean, it looked like we had been beaten with baseball bats, just the, so many bites all over our bodies. <clears throat> and we had gotten to uh, an Adirondack, which is a three-sided shelter along the Appalachian Trail, a lean-to, some people would call it. And the lean-tos are places that are established where you can camp, uh, they kind of have clearings around them typically, you can sleep. If there's not too many hikers, you could sleep inside. Well, there, for us, <clears throat> there weren't many hikers at all around. We were really the only people... We saw three people through the entire 100-mile wilderness, and those were the three people that saw Ken fall. So that's when wow. he got his trail name. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, here we're at, a, at an Adirondack shelter, and at those locations there oftentimes is an outhouse or a privy. And this particular privy was very well built. When I say very well built, that it still needs some context built around it, but it's, it's a wooden outhouse, and it actually had screen protecting it from the outside too. So all the gaps were, were covered on the backside of the outhouse with screen. And so when we stepped into it, there were no black flies in there, which was just this peaceful place because we had escaped the black flies. Oh, yeah. but it, was, it was inside of an outhouse and there were two guys in it. So me and my brother both in the outhouse and we decided it was so nice to have this relief from the black flies that we ate our lunch sitting in this outhouse, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I think that provides the perspective of what yeah. relief is. Well, the comical part about this is the there was a name plate on the outhouse. Uh, it had its own name, and the name was Fort Relief. Oh. And so we we ate lunch in Fort Relief, this outhouse in the middle of the wilderness, uh, mostly free from other bugs, black flies, and mosquitoes. But the perspective is that you know relief comes in different ways, and when you are in a hardship relief is something that you appreciate so much more. And if you're not in that hardship, you really can kind of pass by relief and not even mm -hmm. understand the blessing that it is. But when you're in a position of, you know, challenge and struggle, life circumstances, you gain a new perspective on what relief truly means. Yeah. If I can say this, if you've got a difficult person in your life that just irritates you, then go take a hike where there's a lot of black flies. And pretty quickly, they won't bother you so much because when we go up to Algonquin Park up in Canada, if you go the wrong time of the year, it makes your trip miserable 
because those black flies are all over you. We had a guy that wore one of the black fly nets the net, so that they, they don't bother you, and we laughed at him for about an hour. And then all of a sudden we were like, hey, do you have any extra of those? Now, one thing that, and, and this is where those stories where people are, remain nameless on those stories, uh, you mentioned the outhouse and how relief comes sometimes. And we had a guy go on the trail, and, uh, man, he was bound and determined not to use the restroom on the trail. I mean, he was like, I'm not pooping outside. I'm not doing it. And I'm like, oh, brother, man, your perspective will change. Well, on the trip Doug would take us on, there was one area where you went to kind of this corral area, and they had a double outhouse. I used to tease that it was like an outhouse with air conditioning because there would be this air that would come up through the bottom, and it was like air conditioned in that place. I know for ladies, it's like, oh, that's gross. For guys, we're like, oh, yeah. And uh, some some of you ladies are probably like, oh, yeah. But uh, when, when, when you this guy, I was like, dude, you have to go now. You have to go. This is the best opportunity you're going to have. He's like, no, I'm not going. And I'm like, listen, do it now because there's no opportunity. We're like the next to last day, and he can't wait any longer. And he barely gets off the trail to go. And what was funny is by the end of the trip, he didn't care. He would go anywhere. And it's amazing that what, what happens in life is that when you go through challenges, whether your own fault or, or other situations, God changes you. He changes your perspective on things. And so that's the great thing about being on the trail is perspective is changed when you have those challenges. And so that's just a, a really cool thing to think about in that. And so on that trail, uh, you, you, so you, you, you and Ken are out there, you've gotten through that, uh, just uh we've talked a little bit about keeping your head up um but in there you talk about this you said don't pray for life to be easy but pray for you to be strong i want to hear a little bit about that because for most people they're like doug i would rather pray for life to be easy now knock 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 it's usually not but when you said that, that can get attention. I'm sure there are some guys that think, man, I'd rather pray for life to be easy. Why would I pray for me to be strong? Share a little bit on that because I think that's something guys need to hear. You know, you know we were young when we hiked the trail, again, 18, and my brother's 21, turned 22 on the trail. And so we were learning a lot of lessons. And, and Sean, you're right, this lesson is just a big one. And that when we stepped foot on the Appalachian Trail, we, we didn't even think about how hard it was going to be, but that's what it is. It, it's a rugged, mountainous, outdoor trail, rocks, roots on the trail, ups, downs, and elevation gain. And, you know, there was really kind of senseless to pray for it to be easy because it's not. There, there's nothing about it that's going to be easy on the trail. It's kind of the same thing in life. Like you said, it's inevitable. Life is going to have its challenges. And so we can pray for it to be easy, but guess what? It's not going to be easy. You know that there might be easier stretches. Same thing on the Appalachian Trail. There were some times where it was relatively, you know, flat or the footbedding was good. But you also knew that right around the next corner, there was going to be another challenge. And that is such an analogy of life right there. So we kind of knew that it was senseless to pray for it to be easy. That, that prayer wasn't going to get answered. Not that God couldn't make the mountains flat, but we knew what the Appalachian Trail was and that God had made it. And, uh, what we had to just turn our perspective to was God, give me the strength. Because when I turn this next corner, you know, you didn't always know where the trail was going to start back uphill or where there, where there was going to be a tree down that you had to crawl underneath or right. find your way through the thick forest to get around it. Um, so we just had to pray for the strength to make it through. And yeah, that's a perspective that has followed us through ever since the trail is just praying for that strength. Yeah, so when you guys hear AT, that's Appalachian Trail, if you don't figure it out, because uh, uh, I wrote AT. I, I remember that was the, if you are experienced in the AT, you just call it AT. And uh, so that's the Appalachian Trail. But in, in talking about the easy, Doug, you made the statement, I'm telling you, I'm not telling you it's easy, I'm telling you it's worth it. What, 
I think I know what you mean with that, but share a little bit with the fellas what that means when you're on the trail. Yeah, think about putting on a pack, no matter how much that weighs, whether you've got it down at its lightest weight or it's, you know, you're leaving a town. And oftentimes we would leave a, a town with our packs full of our supplies, you know, food for the next seven to 10 days, full of water. So they're the heaviest pack you can have. And inevitably towns are down in the valley areas. They're not on the mountaintops at the peak. So you'd leave a town and, and to get out of that town, it's a hike uphill. So you got your heaviest pack and you're hiking uphill. But those uphill hikes are always leading you someplace. And on the Appalachian Trail, as well as most places where there's a hiking trail, uh, that uphill trail is taking you to a mountaintop. And that mountaintop usually has a view and that's why the, the trail is, is marked that direction and, and you know made, maintained by the, those, those who are putting the trail together and maintaining it to go up to a, an open area where you can look out. And so when we would get up there, I can't tell you how many times, it seems like it was every single mountaintop, we would get up to the top and drop our packs because we knew that we were, you know, finally made it up, however much the elevation gain was, sometimes thousands of feet of climbing. And you'd stand there and you'd look around. And we use that analogy so many times, the mountaintop experience. You know, sometimes life has you on the mountaintops Right. There is something magnificent about mountaintops. And when you can stand there, and Sean, you shared your experience where you just put on a worship song and worshiped on the mountaintop. Like being on the mountaintop, you only got there because of all the challenge that it took to get there. Sometimes you didn't know what the next step challenge was going to be, but you, you kept putting one step, one foot in front of the other, and you got to that mountaintop. And then you look around, and it's worth it. You realize yeah, that all the pain, all the suffering, it was worth it. Yeah. I remember one trip we took. It was one of our last trips. It might have been our last trip where we tried to put a really long trip in. And the first day we were hiking, it was just all clouds, fog, and you couldn't see anywhere. And it's amazing how defeating and discouraging that gets mm -hmm. because you don't get to see the beauty of where you are. And all you're focusing then on is the negative. My my legs hurt. I'm tired. Whatever it is, and uh, it's amazing because what I found was this: when we would go on trips, especially the first time I went with Doug, because I didn't know where the trail went, where we were going. After I did the same trail a couple of times, it changed. But on that first time, what I was always surprised of is you'd be a little tired from hiking that day and you would come over the top of the mountain and you would think you were almost done. And then you just look forever and it's more mountains. And, and I remember there were a few times where Doug or someone else would say to me, well, there's where we're going. And I would be like, say what? <laughs> That's where we're going. And what's so easy is, you know, cause people always talk about, dude, would you want to know where life goes or not? Well, the problem is, is that when you know those things, what you don't focus on is the destination. You focus on all the stuff in between and what you have to do to get there. And then you fail to recognize that, guys, it's all about the journey. It's all about the journey that you're on. And I don't care whether this is your marriage, as a parent, in your jobs, in your churches, there's a journey that God has placed you on. And sometimes you're going to summit that peak and you're going to think, this is amazing. But God's going to say, don't just stop here. This is cool, but I got more. I got more to show you. Stay on that path and keep going. Now, I know that there are people listening to this today, Doug, that have a question for you. And so this will be our, our blue trailblaze. This will be our blue off the path trailblaze. But how many different changes of clothes did you take on this trip? <laughs> and what is the longest you wore one outfit? <laughs> well, you know, clothing is weight. And so if you're, if you're not wearing it, you're carrying it. And so that was some of the things that we sent home was additional clothing. So our, our philosophy was you wear a pair, you carry a pair. And that, that pair that you were carrying was kind of your relief, 
you know, you'd get into camp at night, you could put on a pair of clothes that wasn't as sweaty, dirty, smelly. And so oftentimes I was like your night clothes, even though you could have been hiking in it during the day, you know, it was, it was the same type of clothing. You could change out of your wet shorts, your wet underwear, your wet t-shirt, put on a pair of dry ones that you hadn't hiked in all day. And so you would wear those just in the evening. But inevitably, as you were getting closer to the next town and you knew that laundry was coming, especially that last day, you'd be like, I'm wearing my, my clean. Now, keep in mind, these are not clean, but they're the cleanest clothes you have. I'm wearing those into town today because I don't have to put on those sweaty, dirty, sometimes still wet from the day before uh, clothes. And I get to wear those clean clothes in. The only other clothes that we had, I mean, our, our rain suit, um, we had one pair of socks that we wear, wore, one pair that we carried. Um, an extra layer for warmth, like a fleece was in there as well, but it was wear a pair, carry a pair. And that was basically what we had. I, when Doug gave me the list for the first trip I went on, I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, I was like different pair of underwear per day, different shirt per day. Do they match per day? <laughs> and, and I was looking at that. But let me just tell you, by the time I got to some of my last trips, I'm doing exactly what he says because I got it. But what you have to do is understand that you only need certain things in certain environments and certain situations. And I know a lot of you guys may even overpack. Now, guys may be less likely, but I always take more on a trip than I need. When I'm packing... I lay out more because I'm thinking you never know when you're going to need it. And uh, on that trip, I remember thinking, yeah, I need a lot more clothes because I was the kind of guy that always liked the, the warm clothes, the dry clothes, the clean clothes. Man, when you're finally out on the trail, you don't even care. You're just like, dude, I, I mean, Doug said, like, don't use deodorant and stuff. And I, and I was like, what? That's horrible. Man, I wasn't using deodorant. I didn't care who, how I smelled or anything like that. I was just like minimalizing because like Doug said, if it's not on your body, you're carrying it in your pack. And that was on a short trip that I felt that way, not a 2,200 mile trip uh, like Doug took on that. So Doug, in leading and talking about just uh, hospitality on your trip because you got some amazing stories on hospitality. So what they have on the trail is they have shelters. Um, now remember, I'm a hotel guy with a hot tub. I'm cool with that. Um, I do like to go out camping and I like to do this stuff. But on our last trip, we stayed in a shelter. Usually we stayed just in our tents. And I remember the first one of the first trips I had my own equipment on. I had this tent. It was like brand new. It leaked. It was horrible. And no matter where we tried to turn our head, the water was there. And finally, the last night, man, it was raining and we were getting soaked in there. And I'm just like, I'm so done with this. I'm just going to pack and get out of here. But there were times when Doug would talk about, hey, you can stay at the shelter or you can stay camping here. And then he mentioned the critters that climb around in the shelters. I'm like, no way. And so on our last trip, we stayed in a shelter and man, I, I would lie if I said I didn't get a lot of rest that night because I was thinking about what was around there and you hear something like, tick, 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 and you'd be like, oh man, uh, any good shelter stories, Doug, in your time there? I, I feel like I recall one where you guys had a whole lot of people in a shelter cramming them in there on that trip. Yeah, a shelter, the, the rule of the shelter is that it is for the long distance hikers, not the weekend warriors. So it's for the, the people who are out there trying to accomplish the whole thing and through hike. Uh, they have first priority. And then the second rule is that a shelter is not full until the last person is in. And there were a lot of times where we would get to a shelter and there would already be some people in there, especially during the, the earlier part of our trip in the summer and into the fall. Not so much in the winter time, but... You know, I, I remember one particular time where there was a college course, an outdoor course, uh, that had planned a backpacking trip on the Appalachian Trail, and the weather got really bad. This was really kind of the beginning of winter for us, where it started to get to a point of being uncomfortable and in some cases dangerous. And 
this particular storm started out as rain, but it turned to freezing rain into snow. So once you were wet, then it started to freeze. And so very easy to get hypothermia. And, you know, there was this college group that had gotten wet. They weren't experienced. Mm -hmm. They were starting to get hypothermia. And the shelters are built for about six to eight people maximum. Each shelter is a little different design and different size, but on average, six to eight people. Well, we had, I think it was 18 people in the shelter. And so you can imagine we were just packed in there like sardines. But, you know, we, ha we had to allow that to happen because these kids, they were really in a dangerous situation, really hypothermic. We had to help mm. them. Uh, in many ways to get into their dry clothes. I mean, literally helping them get their wet clothes off because their hands weren't functioning the way they should and to get their dry clothes on. And it became an emergency. But, you know, the shelter is not full until the last person's in. And you got to keep that in mind, not just where it's like a little bit tight and you might have to scoot your pad over a little bit, but you got to keep hospitality in mind when it when it's painful, when it takes away from your comfort, when you have to do things that you know, for other people that they wouldn't let you do otherwise. But in this case, it was helping them get undressed and dressed. Mm. And, uh, you know, one item I carried on the trail that I, I carried all the way through and I wasn't even good at using it, but it was the harmonica. And I remember that night and it, it still brings chills to me and tears to my eyes, but mm. I didn't know all these other people in the, in the shelter with us, but the one song I could play on harmonica was amazing grace. Oh, wow. And so, you know, after everybody was kind of settling in and just hoping to make it through the, the what was going to be the long night ahead, I played Amazing Grace on harmonica. And, you know, to hear others crying during that song that, you know, I didn't know and, and for them just to feel like they had uh, really been rescued in some way, that they're going to make it through the night because they came in not sure that they were going to make it. They thought they might be a fatality on the trail, but to play Amazing Grace meant a lot to, to my brother and I, for sure. Yeah. became a theme song for us on the Appalachian Trail. Um, and it became a song that when we got back, and no matter what group we were sharing our experience with, uh, it was the song that we set some slides to music, and that song was Amazing Grace. But, that is real, that's really cool. So you talk about, and, and again, Doug, if I miss areas as we go, man, just interject it in there. Uh, but you talk about puds, pointless <laughs> ups and downs. <laughs> and and you yeah. talk about how God does not design the trail uh, to have those. Well, what what does that mean and how did it apply for your time on the trail? Well, puds is an acronym. Yeah, and you you said it right. Pointless ups and downs. And sometimes, you know, you I like it. Puds. <laughs> You'd be going on the on the trail and you'd be going uphill and downhill and uphill and downhill. And sometimes it felt like there was never a level step. It was either one direction or the other. And uh, you'd, you'd wonder because you get to the top of that elevation gain and start going back down. And you'd think there was no open summit. There was no beautiful view. Like, what was the point of going up this and down this? And so they got labeled as PUDs, pointless ups and downs. But, you know, looking back on it, without going up and down, that was part of moving forward, those ups and downs. You don't get from the north end of the trail to the south or from the south end of the trail to the north without taking steps forward. And those steps, they aren't usually going to be level. They're going to be ups and downs. And we looked at them as pointless as we were going through them. Looking back on it, it's a lot easier to have the perspective of, you know what, there was no flat way around. You're in the mountains. Right, right. And so the only way to get from point A to point B is to have ups and downs throughout it. And it's, it's that analogy, again, of getting through life. And if you aren't expecting to have ups and downs, you're, you're probably not having a realistic expectation of what life is going to be. And so we realize that even those ups and downs do have a point to them. But when you're in them, <laughs> when you're walking up or you're walking down, you just you want to kind of curse them and be like, this is this is just a pud. Guys, I hope you enjoyed our time with Doug Jackson today on this episode of the Time to Man Up podcast. We look forward to continuing our interview with Doug next Thursday. Uh, but before that, we hope that you plan to be with us next Tuesday as the Time to Man Up podcast will be focusing on the face of a warrior. That's right. We've looked at the face of a king and that leadership that we as men are to have. And next week, we're going to look at the aspect of men and the responsibility to be a warrior, to fight the good fight for the things that are important in life. And then next Thursday, we will continue with the second part of our interview 
with Doug Jackson and the life lessons he learned on the Appalachian Trail. If you could take the time for us and and like, subscribe, whatever you can do, follow, that would help get the word out concerning the Time to Man Up podcast. We are excited about what God is doing, and it has been so amazing to hear the stories from other men about what God is doing in their lives. So make sure to do that so that we can get the word out and visit us at Time to Man Up. That's time two, number two, timetomanup.com so that you can check out what is happening. And again, continue to pray for us as we're working on the video curriculum, and we hope to have that out soon, uh, Lord willing. And and uh, we are just so grateful for all of you that have shown your support for, to us. And we just want to encourage you in this challenge as men to live our lives like Christ would have us to live. And that means if we're going to do that, we've got to be willing to man up. So guys, it's time to man up. You have a great day, and uh, join us back next week.